swivel. When you're starting a business or creating a product, it all makes sense in your head. And then someone asks the question, so what does it do? And the first few times you have to answer that, all the words in the dictionary fall out of your mouth and probably a few more. That's because it's one thing to dream something up and another to explain it. Once you try to put words around an idea and see the responses of other people, you start finding the holes in it. Refining a value proposition can't just take place in your head. It has to happen out loud. And that means taking the risk that you'll get feedback you don't want to hear. But being willing to listen to it can be the difference between whether your idea stays an idea or becomes something more. From Swivel Media, I'm Scotty Allen, and this is Starting Line, the new founders podcast, where we talk to established and emerging founders and we start from the beginning. My guest for this episode is an early-stage founder whose story is a great example of an idea that is becoming a reality because he took the risk to ask for feedback and had the willingness to act on it. I'm Anthony Kwok. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Zilio. Founded in 2019 by Anthony and his co-founder, Andrew Twa, Zilio is a website plugin for online fashion brands that lets their shoppers see exactly how clothes will fit on their bodies when they're shopping online. Growing up, Anthony had the kind of childhood experiences that many of us can relate to. I I was bullied all the way through growing up from primary school to high school. There was a bit of racism, but I think really looking back, I was a really tiny Asian kid, like a super scrawny kid, but I had that attitude of not taking any crap. I was a weak person, super low confidence, super low self-esteem. I'd quit every time things got hard and like my social skills weren't went up to scratch. I was just really socially awkward. I just didn't know how to <laughs> talk to people. I just, it was just it's super alien to me. And I just struggled. I struggled a lot as a kid. The irony of the insecurities of childhood is that we think we're the only ones experiencing it, when in reality, the exact opposite is true. But Anthony had an extra ingredient in his mix of childhood issues, and it centered around something that he had no control over. I think what really drove me, what really made me hate, like hate my life and hate myself, or just be ashamed because I felt like I was an embarrassment to my family, to to everyone, because they worked so hard to come here and I was just not really doing well. I was always angry. I treated my parents really badly because I was embarrassed about them as well. I was like, why am I Asian? I hated it. It was horrible. It was always my attitude of like, I hated being Asian, things like that. And I was just always angry and not a very friendly guy to my family. And in hindsight, I felt super bad because they worked so hard to give me a good life. Everything was for me. And I turned around and I resented them for it because of what the cards were dealt, or how the cards were dealt. So I I was the easiest target to pick on. It, It was really torturous going through that phase. That was my life for a long time, and I knew that deep down I was worth more than to be treated like that. 
If you had much experience of being bullied as a kid, you probably spent a good deal of time imagining getting super strong and standing up for yourself in a way that made it stop, and maybe made you the hero. At least, that's what I did. But Anthony didn't just imagine it. So then I used that kind of fire in myself, and I started martial arts. We, we did a lot of kata, which is like almost dancing. <laughs> you do the blocks and the kia, you know, with, with your little like white gi. Like, the, it looks like pajamas with a belt on. I didn't like that because it wasn't practical. So I then moved into Muay Thai, which is basically full contact kickboxing, but with knees and elbows. And you can also sweep as well. And it's one of the most dangerous full contact martial arts. It's not soft. People use it in the UFC and win by far, right? Did that. I was still the smallest kid and I was, I went to the gym with giants, people who were like super tall, super huge, tatted up everywhere. And I was getting ragdolled, getting beaten every single day coming home. I was super sore. But after a year or two, I, I had my first amateur fight. I lost five fights in a row. It was so humiliating because my family, my friends were there and I just get beaten. But I never quit. I let myself get comfortable with feeling uncomfortable, feeling ashamed or embarrassed and just put out of my mind, just keep working on it. And after a while, I got really successful in, in kickboxing. And then I turned professional, made a name for myself, got to fight on Foxtel, fight for the title, fought really, really crazy fighters. I didn't, a lot of people, they fight, fight, fight some guy off the street and just be like, yeah, I'm undefeated. But I, I, I fought people always better than me, always push myself. In my case, I finally punched my bully Steve in the face on the school bus and got him to stop. But it wasn't televised, and I had to have a stitch in my hand because he had braces. But otherwise, very similar. The other thing that helped turn things around for Anthony was a new friend who also became a role model. I met my co-founder Andrew in year eight and year nine. And he was the guy, this Asian guy, good-looking dude, but he'd be the guy to go into a party and everyone would be like, Andrew, like everyone loved him. He'd walk past me and walk down the street and people would shout his name across the road. He's a very social, social guy. He knows how to read people. He, he's very intelligent in that way. And I, I met him in Chinese school and I was like, oh, he has something I don't and I want that so bad. So I... I kind of studied him. I, be, I be, became like best friends with him. I studied him. I, I dissected what he did, what like the different mindsets. And, and I think that's really where it, it started. And within a year, I became one of the most popular kids in school, a year or two. So, and then I think I, when I, when I, you know, consume content or read books or listen to role models and stuff, I always try find things I can learn off people or challenge my own mindset because I've seen myself how big of a change a simple like a simple tweak or a simple improvement in an area can do that's real it's not just in your mind so and I learned about energy if you bring if you have a good energy and bring a really positive high energy into a, a, a conversation or interaction other people's mood is going to get, you know, lifted higher as well and they're going to leave the interaction. People don't remember what you say, but they remember how you feel. So they're going to leave remembering how you feel and that's their impression and you kind of build upon that, right? Things like that. At the same time as Anthony was making a name for himself in Waitai, he finished school and started at university. And it was in one of his undergraduate classes that the initial idea for Zilio was formed. I did a double degree at Monash Uni. I did marketing and management, so two business degrees. 
one of my classes was an innovation class where we we formed teams and come up with like startup ideas. And it was then where I came up with the the virtual fitting room app for your phone. At that time, I really liked to go out and look good and, and go out to party, but like only certain combinations of outfits really made a big difference. And I could see people complimenting me every every time I nail it. So I knew there was something there. I knew it was important. So I was struggling to find good outfits and it was taking so much time. So in my mind, I was like, if I can just quickly dress myself in a video game, why can't we do like have that in real life and dress yourself on your phone in an app? It, it can't be impossible. First off, what is the point of group assignments at university? I mean, that could be a whole other podcast called People Are Lazy and Generally Horrible. But I digress. To Anthony, the virtual fitting room seemed like a brilliant idea. But his classmates didn't quite see it that way. So I brought it to my team in the innovation class and they absolutely hated it. I was so passionate about it as well. I was like, oh guys, get this, right? The virtual fitting room app that does yeah, yeah, yeah. And everyone's like, oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe let's just stick to the uh, <laughs> the portable sunscreen spray booth. So so yeah, with the idea got, got dumped and, and we went with a portable sunscreen spray that could sink into the ground and you, it's placed or like installed at beaches or something. You just walk in, sprays you and walks out. And that is why every beach you visit today has a pop-up sunscreen booth. Or not. It was probably for the best that Anthony's idea didn't make the cut for the project. I mean, we've all seen the social network and look how that group project turned out. The virtual fitting room idea may not have grabbed the group's imagination, but Anthony couldn't get it out of his mind. I, I was always thinking about it. It was always in the back of my mind. I was like, okay... Sure, it got rejected, but like I can't see why this wouldn't work. And I kept thinking about it. I talked to my best friend, Andrew, which is my co-founder, and we started meeting up at cafes and writing plans about it. We ended up coming with up with an idea. There was a virtual fitting room app, a local app you can download. That was everything under the sun. It was a social media platform. It was a virtual fashion magazine because mag- fashion magazines were going out because of the internet. It was e-commerce store. You can put like a tie from Hugo Boss onto your original suit from home or something. You can swap it out and see what's better. Yeah. And then we went forward with that. And then we ended up going into Monash's or pre-accelerator, like a validator idea to see if it had any legs. This is where the process of articulating the product started and all the words came out and there were a lot of them and people were a bit confused no one had any idea even the entrepreneur in residence had no idea how to get this happening it was so complex that we were trying to build the mvp for it we'll practice our pitch the experience about how to come how to sell your idea and how to pitch and and be how to be really concise with the words even though your idea is like a thousand words long or something so frustrating learning that because we're we didn't actually know what we were talking about as well. So we were like, it, it was just, just such a struggle to communicate such a big idea in one sentence. I always ask founders what their elevator pitch is, and many of them would need a very long elevator ride. Like I said at the start, it's hard to explain your ideas concisely, and some of that is because at the beginning we're usually trying to do too much, cover too many bases, have something for everyone. But an elevator pitch isn't just about being concise. It's about being able to clearly communicate to someone else what value they might get out of your business or product. And until it really makes sense to you, it's not going to make sense to anybody else. We finished the validator. Everyone was like, yeah, yeah, you're onto something. But you know, we went out to talk to developers and no one had any idea about 
what we were doing. We're not techie guys. We go out to the world and everyone's like, yeah, that, that's a cool idea. But we had no idea where to get started. And we spent six months to a year just trying to go to events, talk to people. We talked to a manager from Google and he was like, kids, just give up. This is impossible. Everyone was telling us that this is impossible. Everybody, like even our mentors was trying to kind of persuade us to think about other ideas. Anthony and Andrew may not have had the tech skills to realize their vision, but their ideas about what was needed on the fashion side weren't just shots in the dark. They were coming from their day jobs. So at that time, we were working in the fashion industry and we knew that online shopping was blowing up and it was starting to blow up. Because David Jones has a free returns policy, people would just be bringing bags and bags and bags of returns in. And it's not like they love doing that. Like they absolutely hated it. They can be complaining to us all about it all the time. And I'm a people's person. So I just like talk to them about it. And they're just like, you know what? This is the last time I'm shopping online. My husband can come in and try everything for himself. I'm done. This is my second time or third time swapping the same garment just in different sizes, just to find out that none of the sizes worked. So we had a really, really good understanding of what shoppers wanted because we were always interviewing and serving and just questioning and, and probing them. So we understood what people wanted and how people wanted things to be. So the guys had the subject matter understanding and a growing idea of what their product would be, but not the technical skills to build it themselves, which opened up another can of worms. At that time, we were getting targeted by these app development companies. And they were like, you give us 25 grand, we'll just build your prototype and you'll be able to raise $125,000 easy. And then you come back to us and we'll build your entire app. And then, yeah, they, they were selling the dream to us. Their sales guy was so cool. And to us, because we were so desperate, it's been a year, we still have no no leads on how to get this started. We, we were about to invest $25,000, $30,000 into these guys. And then at that time, this company called Pitch Black just came down to Melbourne from Brisbane. And these guys were like an incubator team, a mentor team. These guys were different. They weren't trying to sell us. We had to pass the test with every single one of their partners to be able to work with them. There is no shortage of people who will tell you that they can build an app for you. And some can deliver, but as a non-technical founder with a limited budget, it's a big risk that usually doesn't pay off. Pitch Black came along at just the right time to save Anthony and Andrew from going down that road. But these new mentors were about to put their willingness to listen to feedback to a big test. The biggest test was that we had to change our idea from a B2C app thing into a B2B assess solution because that's where the money was. We had the same feedback from another entrepreneur whose friend had a similar company like us. They started as, out, out as B2C, but you know they later learned that B2B was the way to go and they burned like a million, two million dollars learning that, learning that lesson. And I was like, yeah, okay. But I was so invested, personally invested in our original idea because like a little B2C SaaS thing to me at that time wasn't sexy enough. <laughs> So, and then we obviously brought it to Pitch Black, the, the guys at Pitch Black. What they said was that the technology that you guys would need to build to have it work accurately needs to be on point. You're going to need to invest. If you raise a certain amount, 70 or 80% or 90% of your spending should be on technology. The rest may be on legals or marketing and branding. Whereas if you do a B2C, people would have had to spend like 50 to 70% on marketing and branding to acquire users, which meant 
10, 20, 30% was left on technology, building technology that hasn't even, that doesn't even exist yet. As a consumer, we look at finished products in all their shiny glory without understanding the twists and turns that have happened along the way. It's particularly true when it comes to software as a service. We start with an idea, we listen to people's problems and come up with solutions, and then we have to get real about who's actually going to pay for that problem to be solved. The transition Zillio needed to make now is a very common one, but that didn't make the decision any easier. I think at the at that time we were so naive we were just lying to ourselves in a lot of ways. It like, doesn't matter, we'll just get it done. We had that mindset like impossible is only impossible until it's possible kind of thing. But really sit down and really be true to ourselves with good reasoning as well. I mean, if they just have said it, just do the B2B, we wouldn't have understood. But when they broke it down and told us why, realistically, you're going to have to spend X X percent on marketing or technology and it's just not going to, how do you even see that working? And we we're like, you know what? That's It took us a long time to to slowly digest that. We really had to plot out the, the future steps and see, does it make sense? Can we see it happening? And really ask those tough questions. We look at the numbers and what, I think like 80% or 90%, 95% of apps get deleted within the first however many minutes or something. This It's super high. So what, you're spending $15 to get a user and then there's an 80% chance they're going to delete it anyways within two minutes of using it. So it didn't make sense. So we built a prototype. So we went to a studio. We, we kind of got a, one of the picture act girls to wear a dress. We bought the same dress in, I think, three different sizes. But we had a bit of a gap between the sizes so you can tell the difference. And then you can swap between the sizes and she's spinning, spinning around. Then you can choose the app and scan your body and, and do all that stuff. And then we went out to a race. So the idea was we're going to get the business model, the branding, the roadmap, the strategy down and get, make a really strong foundation of that and then go out to raise with family and friends. And then we can hire the CTO, not get a CTO first and not pay him. Because realistically, from their experience, CT, good CTOs have families, have kids, have mortgages, have bills. Like you could, they, they, they just don't have that freedom, even if they really like that idea. Okay. If you aren't sitting down at the moment, I would recommend it. And maybe grab a stiff drink, unless you're driving, don't do that. But things on this entrepreneurial journey are about to get a bit hairy. Like, I know what happens, and I still feel stressed. We, all, we almost went bankrupt within the first two weeks of founding Zillio. So we spent, I think, a year trying to raise money from friends and family. And first of all, I didn't know how to pitch. So it was super awkward, super structured, super robotic. I was literally reading a, reading a script. It was so bad. So uh, so cringy now. <laughs> I back to think about it. But I finally found one guy and he promised a certain amount of money. And then at that time, we were interviewing like 50 engineers. We were still clueless on what kind of engineer, what engineers were, what software, what, what the difference between a d- developer and everything, right? We we're learning as we we're going. And then finally, we met our CTO, Mike, on LinkedIn. And he was like, Yeah, I just came out of a startup. You know what? I'm actually thinking of going to corporate because I just, I'm, re- I'm ready to hang up the startup gloves. And I promised my wife I'm not, not going to do it, but I actually love your idea. So let's meet up for a coffee or a drink. Met up with him. I was like, We need this guy. Not only does he know how to build this thing or have a good idea on how to go about it, the first five minutes of me sitting down with him, meeting him for the first time, it's felt like I've known him for years. At that time, we had the investment promise of a certain amount of 50000 
but it hasn't come yet. So I started paying him out of my own pocket. And because nothing could go wrong with that, it all went smoothly from there, the end. Okay, obviously not. Things get worse. I think that went on for six weeks, 15, 20 grand out of pocket already on top of the pitch black stuff. I was, what, 24? That's a lot for, 60,000 is a lot for a 24-year-old. So, And I was coming down to the last two weeks and I hit on my investor. I was like, you got to respond. And it was crazy because the level of pressure that was under me, I was like, it was as if I was in a pressure cooker. Like I had so much weight on my chest, like my shoulders, my chest was just tight all the time. I feel like I was about to like have a panic attack, but you had to keep that. You have to like hold on by a thread and still talk to investors and try make things work and be able to think properly with the world collapsing of Brandy and still put on a brave face. And then he turns around and say, hey, Anthony, good to hear from you. By the way, my wife said no. So I was like, well, well, what, dude, like you're going to bankrupt us, right? Like this is not cool, man. You can't do this, man. Like I've literally sunk so much money into this. You, and he's like, oh, yeah, like, investments are bad. Oh, let me talk to my bank broker. I'll call you back in a few days. I promise. Never heard from him again. So I was like, oh my God, man. Everything's fallen down after it's only been launched. And I think it came down to the last three days. I was literally about to sell my car. I was going to sell everything I have. I don't care. Like I was so invested in this, in not quitting. Like whatever it takes, whatever it takes. I was in that mindset. And then my parents must have seen something in me, the way I was going about it. I don't know, but they gave me a second chance. They came in and took over the deal. So their company took over the $50,000 investment and gave us the chance to have a shot. I asked Anthony if this was an emotional moment for him, and that's what he mentioned, a tiny detail he'd forgotten to add to the story. Uh, I've had two strokes after my kickboxing career, and this whole time I was learning how to speak, learning how to walk, my my brain was broken, memory fog, my language just totally dis- disintegrated. But the reason why I br- bring this up is that you asked me if it was an emotional time. Yes and no because I had no emotions. My emotions were kind of broken. I was in denial about this for a long time because I wasn't afraid. I knew, like, I fought harder fights than this in in kickboxing. I know it's just muscle memory. I I can learn how to speak again. I've done that before. I can learn how to communicate. But my emotions was something that I was in denial about because I don't, I, I don't know, maybe I just didn't think about it, but I couldn't process emotions. I didn't know that, that was happening. I was just like, cool, okay, on to the next step. I was going bang, bang, bang. And even my best mate, he was like, we, we, I finally raised the 70, 75 grand from someone, from some investors. So this is a big win for us. I had no emotions. I was like, cool, on to the next thing. As someone who tells strangers when I have a hangnail, I can't really relate to leaving two strokes out of the story. But the fact that that didn't come up in the first part of the conversation is kind of symbolic because during that time, Anthony wasn't thinking about it or processing it. He was focused on moving on and bringing Zillio to life. It wasn't until Anthony lost his grandmother, who he was very close to, that he realized that there was a stopper on his emotions. And so he did something which is becoming more common when it comes to working through things like this. He took a therapeutic dose of magic mushrooms. It was like a tidal wave of emotions. Everything came flooding back and I, it was the most horrible feeling and the most wonderful. I felt the full weight of my grandma's death, but then the beauty, the happiness of memories started coming back and the emotions and memories. What came out of that 
was just all the pain at once. It was like a like the floodgates opened, and then all the beautiful memories I used to have. Oh, I could relive it. I could feel it. It was amazing, man. Like it was stolen from me from the stroke, and it all came back. All those pathways started reconnecting. Now, please don't go out and eat the first mushroom you see, and then blame me when you die. I'm just telling the story. For Anthony, this was a pivotal moment, and it was full steam ahead from there. After we got that investment, we signed a few more foundation clients, a few more brands. So we, I think, we had like a total of six fashion, uh, fashion labels from the get-go, who was ready to have us on board. And then came the part of building the technology, a one-man army. And for Mikey, that was some of the most stressful times because he was pulling twenty-hour nights non-stop burning out left right and center and we didn't have much funding so we had to be really lean we're basically building a car in a garage that wasn't made to build cars we're just putting scraps together just making it work however way we're using open source things that wasn't really made to be commercial we didn't actually know if it was going to work the technology so we did one of our foundation clients gave us uh, a t-shirt so we turned the t-shirt digital a baggy t-shirt and we could show the fit on an avatar and we go, like, okay, that's cool. Now we've done that. Now let's do the hardest garment, skinny jeans for women's, the most intricate garment. And we were like, if we can do that, surely we'd be able to raise investments and just fill in the gaps in between. So we did that. That took a very long time to kind of get right because everything started breaking. You, if you go up a size, the higher the jeans are, might pull pull the seam off your, your knee or your ankle or like one of the points might break. It's very intricate 3D work, but we ended up nailing it. And then we built a thing so we can put it into a store for users to, to create their own avatars. And that was a, a mission and a half in itself for our jeans to be able to fit on anybody, any shape, any size. That was a mission and a half. And then that took up to early this year. Zilio is currently in use in the online store of Australian fashion designer Bettina Leono, who's best known for her denim jeans. It's been a fantastic way to prove out the technology. The next steps are another fundraise. But through recent experience, Anthony and Andrew have identified the pieces they still need to make that happen. Across enough garments for us to be able to have those metrics. But we didn't have those metrics. We had user testimonials. We had accuracy testing. And we went out to raise the 600000 And unfortunately, all investors want for, the, for, for a seed round were those commercial metrics. So now we've postponed the raise and we're going back and we're upgrading the MVP so we can house as, as many brands as we want, as many garments as we want. We built it for investors to prove out that we can do the, uh, the technology. But now we're going to be releasing tons of upgrades over the next you know, coming few weeks or uh, two months. And on the front end, it's going to basically look like the commercial platform. So it's going to be a pop-up inside of a store. You'll be able to scan your body and build your avatar that way and get all the measurements. We'll be able to house more garments and go from there and work on the business. We got until late next year without any bridging round. And that's because me and Andrew took ourselves to the payroll. But we don't really care. We'll make money on the side. And that's given us the freedom to really work on the business and turn this MVP into make it as good as we can and get this in front of as many people as we can. The more we chase investment, the more we do things for investment. Okay, we'll go change this and maybe this will be better. Will you give us money now? Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll change this. We'll do one more, a few more tests. What about now? 
I feel like that's not a really strong mindset to approach this with. So now we're just, we've got the freedom to really focus on the business and work on the business and do that as good as we can. And investments will come as a byproduct. To Anthony, it feels like the Zillio MVP phase has taken far too long. But when I listen to his story, my main takeaway is these guys are resilient. They believe in what they're doing. They've been prepared to take the time to perfect the technology, to build mentoring relationships and listen. It's obvious from spending time with Anthony that there's also been a lot of personal growth along the way. I asked him to sum it up. I've really learned how my mind works. I've really come to understand it. Some people, they they just kind of block it out and lie to themselves like everything's okay and just go on social media to numb it and not make them think about it. But I've really learned how my brain works and, and the types of habits that make me the best I can be. And that came from a really young age, from when I was bullied. It was these things. I'm no different to you. I'm no different to anyone else. We're all the same. What makes me different is what I physically do day to day, right? And then over the five years later, if I read a book every day, I'm going to be smarter kind of thing. So, and I understood this at a really young age. It's kind of like banking for the future. I started doing these things. It's super awkward right now for the first one, two years, but in five years, I'm going to be a superstar at that, at the way I talk, the way I present myself or, or the way I think. So definitely habit building and, and just mind hacking, just learning more and grab my mind and, and, and strategizing around that and building more of a fortress that lets me do what I do. A huge thank you to Anthony Kwok for speaking with me for this episode. You can learn more about Zilio by visiting zilio.com.au. That's Z-I-L-I-O.com.au. And you can also follow Anthony on LinkedIn. Starting Line is a production of Swivel Media. It's produced by Phoebe Zukowski-Wallace and me, Scotty Allen. Our consulting producer is Amanda Reedy. This episode was mixed by Rob Clark. Original music is by Ash Janif. Our podcast artwork is by Marcos Mendy. And we had additional assistance for this episode from Shirel Mee. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a positive rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It helps other people to find our show. To find out more about Swivel, our services, and other shows, visit swivelmedia.com, that's swivel with an O, or find us on social media, and we'll see you there. Swivel. 